0: bleep bleep bloop bleep r2 is that you know it's gaming time on the nerd by word podcast as chris and i discuss our favorite video game console of all time Ladies and gentlemen, nerds, welcome back to episode 90 of the Nerd Byword podcast, the only podcast that knows the Konami code by heart. I'm Dave, here with my buddy Chris, and today we are dipping our toes back into the world of gaming to discuss our all-time favorite video game console. But before we dive into our big talk, it is, as always, time for... Chris, you've got some juicy news for us this week. What have you got?
1: Well, during Super Bowl Sunday, the first full trailer of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness dropped and blew everyone's minds. On top of the much-beloved dark version of Stephen Strange, the What About Me Wanda Maximoff, truly horrifying monsters and the titular character in Cuffs, we hear an all-too-familiar voice saying, we should tell him the truth. The voice in question is undoubtedly that of Sir Patrick Stewart, who famously portrayed the the first iteration of Professor Charles Xavier in the much-maligned Fox X-Men film franchise. While the majority of X-Men fans are more than willing to hit the reset button and act like those two decades of mostly abysmal films just didn't happen, Stewart's portrayal, alongside that of Sir Ian McKellen's Magneto, are widely viewed as one or two of the diamonds in the rough. Really, really rough. While the irony of Charles Xavier telling someone the truth is hilariously inescapable, speculation has, of course, run rampant uh, since the trailer's debut last week. Marvel Studios looked fans in the eye and said, You thought No Way Home was crazy? Hold our beer. Or brew of the Beyonder. Uh, Sir Patrick Stewart played coy about the whole thing, neither confirming nor denying. But Dave, all speculation aside, you're a Sam Raimi superfan particularly of his horror work, and this looks right up your alley.
0: Yeah, I will say that uh, the trailer was particularly exciting for me. Uh, I really, really liked some of the imagery. Uh, there's this uh, this shot in the trailer where the transition from like this nightmare to uh, the waking world as Doctor Strange wakes up and it kind of spins the camera around, and that is such vintage Raimi. It's, it's ridiculous. So seeing Raimi... Uh, taking on this kind of movie and tinging it with some of his horror experiences is very, very exciting to me. Um, I will say that uh, I'm I'm a little... Look, I think the best way to put it is that what they did with uh, Spider-Man uh, No Way Home was <clears throat> a lot of fun, uh, seeing the various Spider-Man united uh, for part of the movie. And, and I enjoyed that a great deal. But I would hate uh, for this to be for the foreseeable future, the new gimmick, uh, that they're going to keep bringing people back from previous non-MCU franchises just as a way to bolster their movies rather than leaning hard into, you know, powerful storytelling and the like. And, you know, nothing against Sir Patrick Stewart, who is probably the, we can say, the best Charles Xavier we've had on the big screen, even though, you know, James McAvoy did all right with it. Um, I, I think the problem just is that, By kind of pointing backwards like that in this particular movie, they're shooting themselves in the foot when it comes time to point forward to the MCU's own version of the X-Men. You know, there's all sorts of rumors of other uh, characters from non-MCU movies that might make an appearance. There's been some talk about, you know, Mr. Fantastic showing up. and again, if you're going to be doing your own uh, Fantastic Four here soon, you know, what is your purpose as a brand in pointing backwards to a, a movie series that was not nearly as successful and not nearly as beloved as what you hope to launch yourself? Uh, you know, at some point, um, it might be time to stop doing this self-referential game, um, I'm very, very excited for the movie. I think the story looks interesting. Um, I, I think the imagery looks awesome. I think Sam Raimi appears to be at the top of his game. But I, I am growing a little concerned about the future of the MCU if it becomes this sort of belly-gazing, self-referential. Hey, look, we've got the other other Professor X in this, like at some point, we're going to have to say enough is enough and just tell good stories, don't you think, Chris?
1: Yeah, I think it's a difficult, uh, difficult needle to thread. I think my hope, my hope, is that this is just the bookend of this whole multiversal playground, um, you know, that started in No Way Home, and this is just tying up those loose ends that that were still kind of open at the end of that film. So that's my hope, and that you know sir patrick stewart's version of the character this is nothing more than a touchstone and like a a a next level easter egg and and it's like a touchstone and then like that's it because i think any anything further than that is just a mess and and i think it would be it'd be just just a mess, to be honest. Um, I, I totally agree with what you're saying about like the visuals of this. There's one particularly that goes like looks at Wanda straight on and then goes into her eye and then, you know, goes into another scene. Somebody did a really cool edit where it went that shot into her eye and it zoomed out of um, Otto Octavius's eyes from Spider-Man 2. That was really, really cool. But yeah, I'm very, very excited about it nonetheless. And this is just I I I'm hoping just like I said, a touchstone thing and nothing more.
0: See, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not entirely convinced that this is actually going to be a bookend to the the multiversal stuff. I would not be surprised if there's some kind of backdoor created in this movie that allows for some kind of multiversal travel. Um, they're obviously introducing um, uh, America Chavez in this as most likely from you know what quote-unquote leaks we're seeing uh, most likely she is a hero from another earth and i cannot see them discarding her in in such a quick fashion because she's a very very cool character um so my guess is that they're going to build in some kind of back door that is going to allow for some stable multiversal travel so they can have their cake and eat it too i'm just afraid i guess the best way to put it is is that i don't mind the multiverse as a storytelling concept i i I'm concerned of them using it predominantly as a way of bringing back actors and franchises that have overstayed their welcome at this point. If you're using a storytelling device to introduce new characters or new scenarios, well, that's ideal. But let's stop looking to the past and start looking to the future.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Especially with something that was much maligned and not popular.
0: Oh, Absolutely.
1: All right, Dave. Uh, I almost put this as my story, but it feels fitting that you're much more well versed in the uh, in the the subject matter, I guess.
0: Yeah. So <clears throat> it seems to me that Amazon screwed the pooch a little bit in its acquisition of Comixology. Now we know that Amazon has technically owned Comixology for quite a while, and for those of you not familiar, Comixology is sort of the the premier, uh, biggest one-stop shop for buying digital comic books it's not an all-you-can-eat buffet like uh, marvel unlimited is or dc universe infinite um but it's much more you know tailored towards people who want like a digital subscription or they want to buy individual issues digitally um there's been you know digital rights management free comic books available so you can load them into other readers and read them um a pretty cool system overall, one that I've used in the past, not super extensively, but enough to be, you know, rudimentarily familiar with the app and how it all works. And so Amazon acquired this uh, whole thing several years ago, and now has started making significant changes to it, particularly by integrating it more with its own website and with uh, its whole Kindle ecosystem. And And this is Uh, where things are becoming problematic, Uh, both creators um, and readers are having serious issues with the changes instituted by Amazon to comiXology. And this is not an exhaustive list, but here just a a few things to note. Um, For example, the new storefront used for comiXology is extremely uh, disorganized. Um, with certain featured, quote-unquote, featured books kind of at the top. New releases are featured at the very bottom of the page and not in alphabetical order, but completely random, it appears. Um, all the digital rights management-free comic books are now uh, featuring digital rights management, which means you can't use a, you know, a third-party app to read those books. Um Sales uh, appear to be very difficult. They they put like collections up for sale. But if you want to like purchase a specific issue within that collection, it's almost impossible to find. You have to kind of like browse to the series and then look up the issue and see if it's part of the collection and therefore on sale. Um, there's, uh, you know, the web reader is apparently just an unholy mess. Um, the app reader is still fairly similar, but it's been integrated with all sorts of, you know, advertisements for, you know, Kindle Unlimited and Kindle services uh, and and features certain design choices now that seem to be very, I guess, regressive is the best way to put it. Um, There's also been some rumblings that the split with uh, independent comic book publishers that use the submission function has changed and that they now make significantly less off of digital comics sold via comiXology than they did before. And there's all sorts of issues happening with um, international customers, particularly that as of right now, subscriptions, which is sort of the bread and butter, you know, you you purchase a subscription, and then when a new issue comes out, it sort of automatically downloads and shows up up in your library for you to read. Apparently, that has gone out of the window for international um, subscribers. So I think what it comes down to, plain and simple, is that Amazon has made a lot of changes here for change's sake. Um, I will say that I found comiXology extremely user-friendly in the past and probably one of the best ways to consume digital comic books. They did a whole lot right uh, in how their store was organized and how sales functioned, um, in how the library functioned, in how they displayed. Comic book pages, splash pages, individual panels. Like this has been perfected over years of trying to do right by comic book readers. And here comes this, you know, big corporation and is a little tone deaf and doesn't quite understand the difference apparently between a comic book and a prose novel and is really just, I mean, they're pooping the bed, Chris.
1: Yeah. It's really strange that I, it, it really begs the question, like what happened? Because, uh, if, if memory serves, they acquired uh comiXology in 2014. So like, it's always been like, you know, loosely connected, um, you know, with, with everything else on the, on Amazon for the last eight years, why now, what was the touchstone as to, or, or what was the, you know, the, the final thread that they were like, you know, we need to do this whole thing. Um, I I recently just purchased the last two issues of Newbie and the Amazons and and didn't really have any issues. I guess I didn't spend a whole lot of time on the site um, and I just used the search feature. I knew exactly what I was going for. Um, So I didn't really run across any issues, but um, yeah, this is, I, I, I use mostly Marvel unlimited and I'm just a huge fan of the way everything is laid out there. It's very easy to pick up a new series the the whole layout, especially since the app update of Marvel Unlimited, I think is second to none. Um, you know, for, for me, DC Universe Unlimited is not the most user-friendly. It's kind of difficult to find... Um, especially as a newcomer to DC Comics, it's not the easiest to manage. Um, but Comixology, I never had really any issues with this. But th- then again, not a whole lot of experience. So I'm just curious as to number one, why after all this time to switch it up? And number two, what's the response? Because this it, it's quite, caused quite the the you-know-what storm online.
0: Yeah, so I'm not exactly sure what to tell you here. Obviously, a lot of people are extremely unhappy uh, with this whole situation on the creator front, on the publisher front, and obviously on the reader front. And, you know, you and I both know uh, that Amazon is not exactly the most uh, responsive company when it comes to complaints, both from its workers or its users. But it is my hope that they understand here that comic books. Uh, are a, a kind of a different kind of industry and, you know, a more niche industry in a lot of ways. And you have to make sure that those customers are happy if you're going to participate in that space. And so what they've done right now is, it's just a really, really bad move. Hopefully uh, they'll listen to feedback and make some changes. All righty folks, that's it for nerd news. When we come back, It's that special time for the ByWord Big Talk when we talk about our favorite video game console. Stick around. And we're back, ladies and gentle people. And this week, we are going to be talking about our favorite video game consoles. Chris and I each have selected one console that was particularly influential in our lives. And we are going to tell you the Three best things or our three favorite things about this console in this week's. Big Talk. Now, Chris, I wasn't really quite sure what to expect from you when it comes to your all time favorite console. I'm not exactly shocked, though, to see what you selected.
1: Well, first and foremost, before we get started here, just looking at our shared document with our notes and our reasons why i think this is truly kind of like a peek behind the curtain and a hilarious underlining of our personalities of our friendship and how we relate to one another we've before mentioned both on the show and on social media that is very much a spock and kirk relationship or for those of you who understand this reference even more aptly probably Uh, an O'Brien and Bashir relationship um, because all of your points are very logic based, uh, very technical based, very like to the point. And mine are, how did it make me feel? (laughs) So (laughs) it's very emotional versus logical. Um, So yeah, for me, it was a toss up. Um, the, The Dreamcast is very, very near and dear to my heart. The the SNES is very near and dear to my heart. It was my first gaming console ever. But if I had to pick one that was like really formative for me, it would be the original Xbox. Um, and the first reason for me is I moved, um, you know, from South Dakota to Tennessee um, at a really important and like formative time in my life. And it was really, really hard moving all the way across the country. I always joke that I went into teaching foreign language because when I moved to Tennessee, I did not understand what anyone was saying. Southern English, um, and it's wild because my dad, you know, was from Arkansas, so I thought I knew Southern English, but I guess Tennessee English is a whole other dialect. Um, I can
0: echo this, by the way.
1: Yeah, so I felt very much like a fish out of water, and I'm an introvert. I don't make friends very quickly. Um, I'm very, almost like like socially anxious, I guess, and so you know, my parents were like, okay, this loser is not going to go out and make friends. He's not going to socialize. Here's an Xbox. And so, you know, it was really the first thing that kind of helped me kind of escape all the anxieties and missing my family and friends back home. Uh, And so it was really one of those things that uh, gave me a sense of normalcy in this new place. Um, Not to mention like the the uniqueness of the design like I loved like the the design of the console um the design of the controllers like I just love how fat they were like for lack of a better term they were huge um and then, you know, there's just, like, the aesthetic of... I love that old loading screen where it's, like, very deep... And then, like, <laughs> it, it goes to, like, this weird green goo that morphs into the Xbox logo. So, yeah, it was really one of those things that really kind of grounded me in my high school years. Because, like, starting high school in a new land, so to speak, was really, really tough.
0: Yeah, I can absolutely imagine that. Um and I have, you know, obviously some fond memories of the uh, original Xbox as well, although mine were not from the time period Um when they uh, when it first released, I was one of those people that you know lapsed from gaming and kind of came back to the Xbox Plus. I'll freely admit I was a Nintendo fanboy in a lot of ways for a good chunk of my life. So uh, on release, the Xbox kind of flew under my radar. But it's interesting that you mention you know uh, the, the Southern English and Tennessee English and sort of the, the 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 region that that we both call home currently being. um, very different sometimes from the rest of the country or places that we've encountered before. It was certainly an adjustment for me as well, coming from Germany. So my um, sort of refuge during that time was was comic books. Uh, I actually was not gaming much during that time.
1: It's been 20 years and I still don't get it half the time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave. Your pick um, is—I I already mentioned—a very big part of my life and 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 very near and dear to my heart as well.
0: Yeah. So I, I have um, the the benefit, uh, I think, of having just an absolutely fantastic childhood, and uh, I always tell my parents that I'm deeply indebted to them for that. Uh, they they worked incredibly hard to make sure that my childhood was you know, filled with love and activity and and doing things and learning things and constantly moving forward. And uh, so I have only, you know, fond memories really of my childhood. So one of the things that obviously happened to me is that uh, I initially encountered uh, gaming through the Atari 2600, which my father owned. And when it came time for me to own my own first video game console, it was the Game Boy because I like taking games on the go. I eventually would get an NES, but it kind of felt to me like, oh, look, it's a Game Boy game in full color. You know, the Nintendo revolution kind of slapped me in the face with the release of the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, the SNES, which is to this day my all-time favorite console for so many reasons. And I will admit, Chris, when it comes to the SNES, a lot of that to me is also emotion-based. There's a lot of nostalgia that I have uh, for that time period in my life, for the friendships I had, uh, for how a console with local multiplayer could become sort of the center of a friendship that was actually taking place in person rather than via the internet. And um, and so, you know, a lot of the things that make the SNES special to me are emotional as well. But as you've mentioned, I am also kind of an analyzer. And so it is it is understood that, you know, I will analyze. And one of the things in hindsight that I probably appreciate uh, most about the SNES is simply the controller. The controller was... Just a revolution at the time period. If you think about the previous Nintendo controller, you know this this just square, you know thing that sits in your hand with with you know two buttons, a directional pad, and and, and that's it. There wasn't really a lot of like uh, design aesthetic to it. Um, there was nothing really um, interesting, ergodynamic, anything. But man did Nintendo take what they learned from the NES and then transfer that to the SNES. There is nothing bad about this controller, nothing. The size is perfect, the shape kind of like a bone, feels great in your hands. Um the four button layout for your right thumb is something that still continues to this day to some extent on like um uh, PlayStation and Xbox controllers, like th- this four button scheme works and it works perfectly. Um, then we had, you know, the fact that two of the buttons were recessed, uh, which kind of made it very easy just by touch to already recognize which set of two buttons you were messing with. Uh, that is something I think that is sorely missing today. Uh, most of the buttons feel pretty much identical at this point. Um, they had the directional pad man can we talk about the directional oh. pad because I, I can I can sing a song about the directional pad of the Snes which is the perfect directional pad that to me at least has not been matched since you know most directional pads good directional pads they sit on a bevel in the middle right and they kind of move back and forth based on your thumb placement but they're they're pivoting is what they're really doing they're not you know individual buttons and the size the, the, the quote-unquote squishiness, uh, the way the bevel was seated, everything about the directional pad on the SNES is perfect and has not been matched since, even by Nintendo itself. Uh, directional pad didn't really feature much on the n64 controller was shrunk down tremendously on the gamecube controller um now we're looking at you know the wii where motion was much more important um the switch doesn't even have a directional pad it has directional buttons thereby abandoning the thing i think nintendo really knows how to do best which is 2d gaming um the xbox and the playstation have certainly not matched the directional pad and then we got the innovation to end all innovations, which is the shoulder buttons, the l and r buttons, which of course have been further on developed since into triggers, which are you know commonly still used to this day, so you know the idea of shoulder buttons are a huge revolution, so this this whole controller was just from top to bottom a revolutionary device, and I still Love the design of that controller. I still love using that controller. It to me it's just the quintessential 2D controller, Chris.
1: Genie Jafar Aladdin Abu. Genie Jafar Aladdin Abu. How much do I love yeah. the SNES? <laughs> I still have memorized this the, the the insert character code screen to get to the furthest level possible of the Aladdin game it is genie jafar aladdin abu it will take you to the genie's level and that is the furthest jump on point this is way before we could like save games like repeatedly and reliably genie jafar aladdin abu you're welcome there you go um yeah i i totally agree with all of this i mean this was like this was like riding a bike for me. And actually I did it before I was riding a bike, you know, with, with my health conditions that I've chronicled before, I really struggled with motor skills and everything. And this was one of those grounding moments. And one of the things that really helped me was that controller. Uh, this is going to sound really weird, but like the muscle memory of my thumb resting on those four buttons is just, it's therapeutic in a way. Like I'll grab my old controller and just like, it's almost like a, a blanket when you're a toddler. For lack of a better term, I love that the X and the Y felt like Smarties on your thumb. And then the A and the B, it, it gave me like a sense of security. Like I know exactly, you know, where my buttons are and, and and all that stuff. So, I mean, like the list goes on and on for the games that really, um stood out to me and and really had a, a special place in my heart you know for the snes you know you go super mario world was the first video game i ever played um street fighter 2 i still have nightmares of Dalsim reaching all the way across the screen and pimp slapping me um i i still live in fear of being electrocuted by blanca um so like there's so many things about the SNES that are just very very special to me and and the controller is at the forefront of my mind as well.
0: Yeah, it's just it's just a great 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 device, Chris. All right, let's get back to that Xbox. What is another reason why the Xbox is so special to you?
1: Uh burned games. <laughs> so, my dad is very tech savvy. Um he is actually totally blind, but um with his speech software, one of the like core bonding things of my youth is between the dreamcast and the Xbox. So this is probably why both of them were near and dear to my heart. And were it was a toss up between them. He found a way to mod both of those consoles and we played bird games. So, okay, don't, don't seek us out or anything. Uh, cause it was 20 plus years ago. I think that's beyond the statute of limitations, but, um, we could play basically any game that he found torrented and downloaded on the Dreamcast and the Xbox. So I just had, you know, surprised that I was a procrastinator as a teenager when I had just about any game at my disposal. And just having, you know, those old CD cases where you have like, it's the black leather with a strap and you like, you zip it closed and zip it open. Uh, you know, I had like a 200 space. You know, one with basically every game you could think of over the Xbox. So I, I had uh, a lot of free time and uh, I basically filled it up just playing anything and everything on the Xbox. So um, shock culture came when uh, the Xbox 360 came out and he's like, yeah, I'm not I'm not doing that anymore. I can't find a good program for it. And so I started actually having to play game, pay for games. And, and it was a it was a culture shock.
0: No, oh, I can imagine. Yeah, so this is actually not something that I got into until much much later in life, the idea of like modding consoles and and trying to do like interesting weird stuff with them. Um so I never actually got to do this with the Xbox. I hear though that even to this day there are you know absolutely fascinating things that you can do uh with an Xbox if you're willing to go through a modding process and pick up a used one somewhere. So I'm I'm fascinated by by the modding scene and, and what all you can do with a console that has, you know, since long been discarded. And I'd be fascinated to get my hands on an original Xbox and just see what all I can, you know, do with it. Just messing with it like that.
1: Yeah. I was incredibly nervous too, because where he's blind, I had to be his eyes, so to speak. And so like I had to, I was a real nervous kid. So I had to like unscrew the lid and like put a chip somewhere. And I was like, I felt like I was in like this, you know, Hostage negotiation thing, or like c- cut the right switch. It was like extremely nerve wracking, but you know, yeah, it, mission it, impossible. It, it, well, yeah, it, it paid off because, um, you know, I got to reap the rewards.
0: That's awesome, man.
1: All right, let's head back to the SNES.
0: Yeah, so I think one of the things that the SNES did extremely well for its generation, um, that had not been really attempted nearly as much before. Uh, was long form storytelling, particularly through stuff like action adventure games and, and RPGs, and really games that kind of sit in that space between action adventure and RPG. Um, that's not saying we hadn't gotten some of these, you know, before. We had, you know, some Final Fantasy games on the on the NES. We had, you know, uh, the original Legend of Zelda on the NES, but you know, things just heightened on the Super Nintendo in a way that convinced me, at least, and I think a lot of other people of my generation, that, you know, dramatic storytelling um, was possible in in video games. Um, I remember particularly playing, you know, uh, The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past for the first time. And, you know, there's this moment where you think the game is winding down, and then suddenly, boom, you know, there's that, that shadow realm. And you're like, wait a minute, I'm not even halfway through the game.
1: What?
0: You know, it completely changed the equation. Um, and then you had, you know, stuff like the, uh, you know, the the the, the Mana series. I like guess Secret of Mana, which was like uh, absolutely awesome. You know, action-adventure gameplay with RPG elements thrown in. Uh, you had, you know, Secret of Evermore. You had really a golden age of RPG. I mean, RPGs, particularly turn-based RPGs, blossomed in a way on the SNES that to this day there are games that were released for the SNES that were so massive in scope and storytelling that they've never fully been translated officially. Uh, There are some fan translations that you can download online and you know splice into a ROM to make it playable on an emulator or something. But we're talking about games that were so massive in scope that they've never been released. I mean, we just now heard from a Nintendo Direct that they're releasing, I think, Live a Live, For the first time in in the West, they actually have an official translation. Um, uh, The sequel to Secret of Mana was released a couple of years ago for the first time in an official translation. The only way to play it in the West before that had been in a fan translation. This epic sort of storytelling and, and really just a love for RPGs and and RPG-style gameplay. Gosh, I mean, we could sit here and talk about, you know, this till the cows come home. This is the console... That gave us Chrono Trigger, arguably one of the greatest RPGs of all time. This is the console that gave us Final Fantasy IV, uh, Final Fantasy V and VI. Uh, You know, this is an incredible console for long-form storytelling and for gaming that uses turn-based battle systems or or lean heavily into sort of action-adventure like The Legend of Zelda. I don't think any console has ever been this good of a one-stop shop for just excellent RPGs, except perhaps I think Sony's PlayStation filled that space um, the following generation. But the problem I think with that oftentimes is that in the transition into a 3D space, uh, a lot of those games on the on the PlayStation, on the original PlayStation did not age nearly as well as the really charming and timeless pixel art of the SNES. So I think we end up with just this this laundry list of just excellent long-form storytelling RPG-style games that still hold up and are still very, very playable today, as opposed to some of the stuff that popped up during later generations. Like, if you want to play a really good RPG, you, you naturally start with the SNES in my book.
1: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to me. And um, anybody who knows me knows that one of my great obsessions is origin stories and like the history of something, like etymology of words, even. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I squandered away an entire 40 minute class period the other day because my my students got me talking about like the difference or the origin of the country's Turkey. And like, what do they call a Turkey in Turkey? And so they got me down this loophole. They know how to push the right buttons and to get me distracted. So just (laughs) like, I, I love long form storytelling as a big novel reader, the thicker the novel, the better. I love a game just like that. That translates my escapist mentality. And um, just like the open imagination of that into a video game format, and, I, and that's one of the reasons that I come to video games is to take what I love reading about and then just seeing that visually uh, is is all the better. Um, and so I love long term for uh, storytelling RPGs. I love feeling like there's stakes and that my decisions—do I pick this conversation bit? I have four options. It could go any one of four ways. How does this thread go? And so just thinking back to that's the origin story of that, that's where this all started, is just fascinating to me.
0: It's also really interesting to me that the SNES was also the place where people experimented with what an RPG could be. I mean, famously, this is the console that, you know, was the debut of Harvest Moon which is, you know, ostensibly an RPG, but is an RPG that is like a farming simulator. There's no, there's no battles, are, there's no quests, there's no, you know, you have to save the world. You're just running a little farm over there and making sure your crops get watered and interacting with people. And, and you know, that has kind of spawned this whole, this whole subgenre, you know, that people still adore today. So, you know, yeah, I mean, this is just, in a lot of ways, the ideal console for that kind of gameplay.
1: Yeah, and I'm a sucker. Like I, I said last week with Halo is is like these side quests and, and like just taking my time before going back to the main mission and just, just building up all these resources. Just fascinating to me. I think for me, like one of the most frustrating things in contrast is like too short of a video game, especially if you're shilling out like $60. Um, I, I think I've chronicled on the show before um, the Fallen Order game, the Jedi hidden... Uh, Fallen Order is that what it's called? Fallen Order, I um, think so. Yeah, I I rented it from Redbox, um, and I beat it in two days, and and I was like, good God, I'm glad I only spent three dollars renting this because if I would have paid sixty dollars to just sit there and do nothing else, I would have been highly frustrated, and you know, like that's that's quite a heist because then you know what do you do with this game? There's no replay value unless you go restart over, but you've already done this um and you know what are you going to do go take it into gamestop for half of what you gave you paid for it maybe so yeah i i love i love big bold imaginative deep-ended stories
0: yeah i'm right there with you man all right let's circle back around to the old xbox
1: all right so my final point um you know i kind of chronicled this with um you know talking about the struggle to make friends and and social stuff but uh, and, and I think you hinted at this with the SNES as well. The local multiplayer um, for me was really formative in like building some friendships, and and uh, particularly with Halo and Halo Two. I remember like the craze when Halo Two was released, and the Halo parties that I used to have with my friends in high school, where. Um, that was the first time I really pulled an all-nighter and did not go to sleep until 6 a.m. on the weekends because we were just up all night playing local multiplayer. And you know, when I fired up, um, you know, this new iteration of Halo for the first time in 15 years, like I chronicled last week, um, it, it didn't really capture the same vibe. Like it was, it was like there was an itch and it kind of scratched nearby. But, you know, I kind of still miss the element of having my friends right there and trash talking, you know, right there. And, you know, my friends are, you know, adults now like I am. And do you have a chance to be online or whatnot? But like there's just something missing, I think, in multiplayer. And we've we've talked about this quite a bit before on the show, but um, it's all online now, which has its benefits. But at the same time, I, I kind of miss that camaraderie of playing all together
0: you know i'm right there with you when it comes right down to it local multiplayer is sorely sorely missed um in in my book i adored being able to do couch co-op and you know the thing is um there there were still until fairly recently some games that you could do that i mean if you look at the the xbox 360 generation one of my favorite games uh was left for dead 2 uh, and of course, the Left 4 Dead games famously featured the opportunity for split screen couch co-op. And my wife and I probably played at least 100 hours of that game, um, even just with bots and not, you know, online with other people, just because we absolutely adored the couch co-op experience of being able to sit in the same room and, and you know, collaborate and, you know, yell at each other a little bit. And It was just an absolute blast um and so i think that is something that the um current generation is sorely 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 missing is that all um co-op gaming has to be in some way shape or form um online that that is just an absolute shame thankfully you know nintendo still is sort of a bastion of trying to do some couch co-op stuff and and hopefully they will continue that
1: yeah uh smash brothers is holding it down for for so many of us um yeah. <laughs> Cuz I mean like I'm at the point where like what's the point of having another controller? Like I can't play anything with my kids. Like if maybe if we were to get another console and play online in a local party, but like what do I do with like the people that I live with and I want to play with them. Like, it's it's just... And, and why not have, like, some kind of hybrid thing where, like, you can do both. You can play locally and then, you know, the other two spots are taken up by online players or bots even. Like, it's just... I think it's such a missed opportunity.
0: Absolutely. I totally agree with that.
1: All right. We're going super nerdy and logical with your last point, Dave.
0: Super nerdy. Uh, that That should be my title. Super nerdy. Yeah, so... <sighs> Technologically speaking, the the SNES did a couple of things that the competition, the esteemed competition Sega at the time did not do. And those two technologies, I think, were a huge leg up over the competition, even though um, otherwise the system had a couple of weaknesses compared to uh, the Genesis. And that is one, Mode 7, and two, the Super FX chip. So first... Uh, Mode 7 basically allowed developers to rotate um, and change the size of uh, pixels, which allowed them to do some really, really cool stuff. If you want to see Mode 7 in action, you don't have to look any further than the very first Mario Kart game, Super Mario Kart, released on the Super Nintendo, which basically used this technology of being able to to turn and rotate pixels to make... um, a two D game that looks a little bit on the three D side in this kart racing situation. It's very, very, very cool. And Mode seven popped up in several other games as well, and then uh, we had, of course, uh, the Super FX chip. Now, one of the things that Nintendo was really big on, and there are several of these, is what they called helper chips. Where they would uh, develop a a cartridge, and then depending on the needs of that particular game, if it needed to do something more than the base SNES could do, they would embed an extra chip to handle that extra processing in the cartridge itself. Which you know at the time is pretty ingenious way of of basically making your console do things that it wasn't originally designed for. Uh, you can't obviously do this today since you know games are predominantly digital or on disk. But in the cartridge age, you could do this kind of thing. And probably the coolest of these chips, just as like a proof of concept, was the Super FX chip, which ostensibly allowed 3D gaming on the SNES. Now, was it primitive 3D gaming? Absolutely. Um, does it look particularly effective or uh, impressive, even at uh, by today's standards, absolutely not. But man, you had to be there when Star Fox was released. <laughs> this thing, this rail shooter, basically in, in a three D space, made out of polygons on a Super Nintendo, was absolutely mind blowing. Now, other games used the Super FX chip for for you know other things. You know, there was a canceled sequel of uh of Star Fox that actually we uh got recently finally released i think on the uh snes and on the snes mini uh they actually finally released this thing because it was like 99 done or something but also something like um yoshi's island actually initially used uh the super fx chip to do a whole bunch of neat effects to create sort of this this storybook look for a game so um uh, it's really, really cool from a technological perspective how the SNES, although it was a little underpowered compared to the Genesis, was able to to pull off some stuff that blew people's minds, particularly, you know, with, you know, this 3D space. And you can see logically why after the SNES, the next place that Nintendo went was the Nintendo 64. They were already dabbling with the idea of how can we move into a 3D space? And, you know if if you were a pc master race kind of person during this time period of course you were you know used to operating more in a 3d space but on the console gaming side seeing this for the first time was absolutely mind blowing and of course you know once once the first footage started being released of the uh, initially titled Ultra 64 the Nintendo 64 that's just when Nintendo fanboys kind of just lost it <laughs> like like lost it seeing the legend of zelda in a 3D space for example seeing mario in a 3D space Th- this stuff was was incredible Um, But it started really the dabbling in these things started on the SNES. And so helper chips and mode seven and how they continue to stretch the SNES is one of the things I absolutely adore about the console.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because uh, on one hand, the 64 is my greatest regret when it comes to gaming. For some reason, I never, I just never had one. Um, But then at the same time, um, you know, the Super Nintendo is so, so special to me and, to the, to the extent that when I, when I would go and play the original Nintendo, I was like, this is, this is garbage. Give me my SNES back. So it's crazy (laughs) how you have, like, it was right in the middle of like this revolution. And it was just like the growing pains that were necessary to give us what we have now. And it's like one of these hallmark kind of innovations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that that's just like scratching the surface of innovations. I mean we're talking about a video game console that used a mouse at one point. I mean you had you had you had Mario Paint on the Oh summer, Mario Paint. Like,
1: oh my god, I forgot about that game.
0: <laughs> so so very, very, very. I thought good. I was I mean, the
1: king of art. I thought I was amazing.
0: <laughs> and let's not even get into the fact that this is also um in a lot of ways the SNES is like, you know, the, 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 the first real king of like you know, backwards compatibility via, you know, the, the Super Game Boy, being able to play Game Boy games colorized on your TV screen. Like, they constantly were pushing with this console, constantly experimenting and trying new things. It's a spirit that I think Nintendo still has to some extent as they try to innovate, like, from console to console, what a game console can be. But then once they have the console out, I think they don't nearly innovate as enough as they did uh, during the time of the SNES, there, there was just a constant push forward. What else can we do with this thing? How can we expand what it means to play a game on this particular console? And I adore that about this console. I just love it.
1: I remember it's a very loose memory, but like there was something that you would insert and that you could play like the old Ninja Turtle game that my cousin had. And like, my mind was just completely blown.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure about that, man. I know I, I remember a lot of like peripheral stuff, uh, official and unofficial. I mean, we're also talking about the age of the game genie and like on the fly hacking of games. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not certain. I would definitely have to research that. Um, it also, uh, bears probably remembering, um, that when I'm talking about the SNES, I'm talking about the, the PAL version of the SNES. Um, Because, you know, I I grew up in Europe, so the the design of the console and, and some of the things that they did with it was a little bit different in Europe compared to the North American market. Alrighty, folks. Well, there you have it. Our uh, favorite video game consoles and several reasons why we absolutely adore these machines. What is your favorite gaming console and why? We'd love to hear from you. Find us on social media. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at nerdbyword or individually at thatnerdchris and at thatnerddave. Tell us what you think. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. After this, our final break, it is going to be time for a couple more NERD commendations, so stick around. And we're back, ladies and gentle people, with everybody's favorite segment. It is time for... NERD NEWS Now, Chris... I am going through a, an absolute shock that you would recommend something that has something to do with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I did not see that coming. This is this is a revolutionary moment for us.
1: <laughs> well, um, followers of my social media page uh, will know that I have been uh, recently blessed with the opportunity... Uh, To write about the Ninja Turtles, particularly the IDW comics, which I have nerd commended once before and sneakily, not so sneakily nerd commended many other times. Um, I truly believe that it is one of the best things uh, that you could possibly read right now. So I'm very fortunate to be working with Comics Bookcase. Um, My first article on basically an overview of the series and why you should be reading it is up on the site now. Uh, It's going to be a monthly column. And my next feature that I'm currently working on is a deep dive on who the character of Jenica is. This new turtle, complete and resplendent with a yellow bandana. um, The first female turtle, uh, if we're not counting Venus. Sorry, girl. And we don't. We don't. (laughs) We don't talk about Venus. Um, But a fascinating character that has really helped bring the property, I think into a new age and like really kind of turned the corner from a storytelling perspective, a really, really fascinating character that I thought I had a good grip on. But in doing my research for this article, I've really um, got a really, even a deeper understanding and appreciation for. Um, and one of the ways that I did that was um, reading the best of TMNT best of Jenica uh, collection that just came out this past week. Now um fans of the series will know that this best of thing has been going around for quite a while with TMNT, and it's kind of like a sampler platter of stories, about a hundred pages total of each character. Um, so we've had all four of the main turtles, a splinter one, a Casey Jones one, a Shredder one, a Splinter one, and now um you know Jenica has her own uh that has several different um kind of expertly selected uh readings. Uh, from different series that'll kind of give you just a, a deeper inside look um, on the character. And they include uh, TMNT number 52 uh, with story by Kevin Eastman, Bobby Cornell, and Tom Waltz, um, art by Ken Garing, colors by Rhonda Patterson. Oh, my personal favorite that I'll highlight in just a moment, the TMNT universe uh, issues six through nine, which were backup stories called what is Ninja story and art by Bram Ravel. Um, the TMNT Jenica number two, number one issue, Monsters with starry, Story, Art, and Letters by Brom Ravel. This dude's working overtime, killing it. Uh, TMNT 116, Story and Art by Sophie Campbell, Colors by Rhonda Patterson. And then the Jenica number one backup time and again with Story uh, by Rhonda Patterson and Colors by Rhonda Patterson, Art by Jody Nishijima. Um, So just a really kind of wide berth on what this character is, her backstory, um, being on the streets and really just falling in with the wrong type of people, going to prison, um, escaping from prison, uh, cutting all her hair off, um, you know, falling in with the Foot Clan, serving as the number one lieutenant under Master Shredder and then Master Splinter after he overthrows him. Uh, so just a really fascinating character. And then also going through the blood transfusion that turns her into a turtle. And now the new normal with the bomb going off and everybody in this section of New York City being a mutant. Um, so just like the complicated history of this character. But the one that I really clung to that was really beautiful to me is that um, that what is Ninja by brom Ravel? it's a, it's a backup story from TMNT universe. And it just really stood out to me. Um, It's, it's a really beautiful story that is um, a storytelling. uh, You know, Jenica is talking with master splinter as she's really kind of struggling with this change in leadership. This is before she's mutated. um, I believe into a turtle and he's telling her like what it means to be a ninja and, and like, it's juxtaposed with each and every each each issue is juxtaposed with one of the four brothers as they tackle, um, you know, the streets and crime, um, and then it's you know side by side with her origin story and all the things that she's had to go through, and then you know Splinter is telling this story and just really giving us those beautiful words of wisdom. That this this quote in particular stood out to me. Splinter says. The past always wants to claim the future as its own, but only a fool trips on what is behind him. We are ninja child. We don't blindly follow the paths laid before us. We create our own. And it's just really kind of encompasses like this whole storytelling experience um, I really truly appreciate like getting to know this character and taking a property that I've loved since birth, basically, into a new and uncharted territory. And it's so it's been a real revelation for me, um, you know, getting to know Jenica. And I highly recommend if you are wanting to get to know this character, this particular collection, five ninety nine, you get a hundred pages of stories, and, and I highly recommend it.
0: Yeah, this sounds ideal to me. I will freely admit I've been reading um, the IDW Turtle series, you know, way off of publication schedule. And so I've not quite reached the point where Jenica is introduced in the series. And obviously, it's it's almost impossible to avoid, you know, spoilers on something like that when a new character is introduced uh, as consequential as her. Um and so I'm aware of the character, but I don't know much about her. And so this collection sounds exactly up my alley, Chris.
1: Yeah, it's a truly, truly delight. And and as far as bang for your buck goes, five ninety nine for that much hard hitting core, awesome content, you can't beat it. All right, Dave, since we're playing our hits, you've got a horror nerd commendation.
0: Yeah, but I don't think I'm completely playing my hits as usual with this one. And you'll see what I mean here in just a moment. So I finally got around to watching the newest uh, Scream. Now, the Scream franchise, of course, was uh, started by Wes Craven many years ago. There was a Scream trilogy initially, and then they came back years later and made a Scream 4. Wes Craven, of course, since has passed and now they've decided to make what would really be Scream 5, but they decided in you know the great tradition of movies of recent years that numbers suck, and they just went ahead and they called it Scream. So we're going to refer to it as Scream 2022, since it's not the original Scream, but really a sequel. And like so many other movies of its ilk coming out in recent years, even Star Wars, you can say, it's not so much a straight-up sequel, And it's not a reboot, but it's kind of something in between there, where they introduce new main characters, but they also still have uh, returning legacy characters to kind of pass off, you know, pass the baton and 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 you know let the next generation slowly take over. So it's very much a movie in that kind of vein. But what makes this movie special is that it knows what it is, and it incorporates what it is. Into the story. One of the wonderful things among horror movies, particularly about the Scream franchise, is that it was always acutely aware of what it is and called the audience's attention to it. It is easily the most meta of all the scary movie franchises. And so oftentimes, in some roundabout way, it actually has something to say about storytelling, about scary movie tropes, um, about movie making, uh, all of those things. So even the fact that I mentioned that this is sort of a a sequel, but not a sequel, and it's very much about introducing a new generation is literally a line uttered in the movie by one of the characters. And so, you know, when you have a, a scary movie, that occupies this very interesting meta space, you get sometimes some really interesting meta commentary. Now, I don't want to give too much away of the story, um, but you have a character who is ostensibly related to one of the killers in the original Scream movie and has to contend with that very troubling legacy. And so when a new Ghostface killer appears on the scene. This character seems to be the main target. And of course, the classic characters return to try to help save the day. But when it all comes together, this is in a lot of ways a meditation on toxic fandom. And I knew immediately after watching it that this would be a movie very much up your alley at the very least, Chris, but also up the alley of a lot of our listeners. Because we talk about the concept of loving something yet hating it quite a bit, you know, the love-hate relationship that Star Wars fans seem to have with the franchise, the love-hate relationship that, you know, the 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 Zack Snyder fandom seems to have with the source material of these DC comic books. And so here you have uh, ostensibly a scary movie that Deals with the notion of toxic fandom, particularly the fandom of the movie series within the movie, Stab, which is inspired by the quote unquote true events of the screen movies. And so you have this wonderful commentary going on in between you know, the gore and the kills and all the scary moments. and when i when I was finished with the movie, I found myself shockingly, satisfied with the overall arc of the movie. I didn't feel like it was a cheap sequel that, in fact, even though it's the fifth movie in the franchise, it actually had something really interesting to say about the state of horror movies, the state of entertainment, and yes, the state of fandom. I mean, you have a character literally say, how can fandom be toxic? How can you hate something you love? And that's really a wonderful, wonderful part of this movie. So, you know, I mean, come for the scares, but stay for the the very interesting commentary. I'm, I'm very, very pleased overall with this movie, and I'm so glad to see that although, you know, Craven isn't involved since he's since passed on, that, you know, this still has something to say. This movie series still has, you know, tricks up its sleeve.
1: Okay. I'm still recovering four months later from Nerd Nightmare. So I thought at first this was just some foreshadowing for next year, but you got me hooked with the toxic fandom bit because with the finale of the book of Boba Fett, they came out in droves as they normally do. And to the point where it makes it really hard to enjoy any kind of content. Um, So with that being said, can I watch this with no previous reference of the other films, or should I do some further research first?
0: I would recommend further research just because, um, so the movie ties very strongly in with the very first Scream movie. As you know, there are characters that are the children of characters introduced in the first Scream uh, that are popping up here. So having at the very least a familiarity with the first Scream would be um, recommend it. Then on the other hand, the movie series within a series, the stab movies, uh, those pop up as of the sequel. Um, so ideally, I would say maybe check out the first couple or at the very least like check out the Wikipedia entries so you get a sense for who the characters are. Um, and then the movie, I think will resonate more. Um, there are very clearly callbacks uh, in this movie. Again, it's very much like something like, um, like a force awakens, you know, a new chapter that still harkens back to the old references, the old, and even brings back the legacy characters. It's very much in that vein. And so could you watch the force awakens as a standalone movie? Well, certainly you could, but I think a lot of the references to the classic material, uh, the significance of, of Han Solo and Chewbacca re-entering the millennium Falcon, for example, would be utterly lost on you. So, um, but you know what i'll I'll go ahead and expand kind of my nerd commendation and say that the scream franchise in general is a very very enjoyable one if you like scary movies and at the very least if you even if you're not crazy about them, but you want to understand more about how they're structured and and the rules, so to speak of slasher movies. These are the movies that literally will spell them out for you. Like you will have characters say, look, I'm a film studies major. And if you want to make a scary movie, these would be the things you would do. So, Hey, if you find yourself caught in a scary movie, don't do this, 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 and this, like it's, it's that kind of smart. And so I think it's almost like uh, an educational experience in some ways to watch the screen movies, because it's great commentary on some of the movies that we've even watched for Nerd Nightmare, like you know, Halloween or or Friday the Thirteenth, and and what those slasher movies are like, with how they're structured, you know, how sequels are structured, to those kinds of movies, and how they introduce new characters. It, it has a lot to say on the topic. It's not just a a horror movie franchise. It's a horror movie franchise that reflects and comments on other horror movie franchises and how franchises like this are made. It's it's very very good if you want to learn about scary movies, I guess. I'm,
1: I'm I'm interested now because I think we could make like a whole episode out of this. Because on the one hand, you say, well, don't be a toxic fandom. But like, then it's, I think it's a difficult line to walk. Because as we previously referenced, the Fox X-Men franchise exists. <laughs> you know, for, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of those DC movies exist. Like, how do you thread that needle, walk that line? you know, because something is, is you feel objectively poor in quality. How do you avoid turning into your worst nightmare?
0: I think there's definitely an episode there. And frankly, I think there's an episode on the Scream franchise as well. If I can get you to watch five of these things. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> Alrighty folks. Well, there you have it. That's it for this week's episode of the nerd by word. Um, if you like what you heard, just uh, like get on your favorite podcasting platform and, and give us a, a rating and review and, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms. You can find us on, you know, Apple Podcasts, on, on, on Spotify and TuneIn Radio. I mean, you, we're, we're everywhere, including our very own spiffy website, nerdbyword.com.
1: And if you want to hit us up on social media, share your thoughts on your favorite console and reasons why, be sure to at us, NerdByWord, on Twitter and Instagram, or individually if you want to call us out, that Nerd Dave and that Nerd Chris. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy.
0: The NerdByWord is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez, with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at NerdByWord.com and wherever podcasts are available.